Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Hi, Noreen. How was your week? Better, I think, compared to last week. Or was it? I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, this week I've suffered a lot with insomnia. Yeah. I'm just not sleeping. It's the type of sleep where I sleep for 45 minutes, wake up, and I'm fully awake. A bit in that flight or fight mode. Then it takes me a while to go back to sleep. Do you have that adrenaline pumping when you wake? Sometimes. Is that or breathlessness or dry mouth or just super awake and it takes me a while to go back to sleep and then again 45 minutes so it's like that all night so it's quite tiring i had my weird sore tongue again which usually means a big crash is coming but i haven't really gone into a big crash yet so let's see yeah fingers crossed but your kids had viruses and you've managed to stave those off i have except i've got this weird cough i told you about a few weeks ago where I would brush my teeth and the mint would set me off into a coughing phase because it's just irritation. Yeah. It went away, but the kids have brought something else home and it seems to have come back. So it seems to be a new weak spot for me. Right. It's just a kind of permanent revolving door of germs at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. Surprised that we managed to get to the end of the week without anyone being homesick. That's good. Yeah. Celebrate that as a win. Exactly. So that was my week. How was your week? My week, similarly to yours, has been pretty good. I've been pretty good on energy levels. I'm I'm tired in terms of I almost have narcolepsy a lot of the time, but I've managed to sustain everything going through to the end of this term. And I have had really low mood days, which like with your prelude to a crash, it's normally the prelude to a crash but at the moment I seem to be staying okay physically. So it might just be that I've become a really moody person. Um, (laughs) But what I was reflecting on yesterday is I went out for dinner and how far I have come in the last year, in the last two years from not being able to socialise, particularly at this time of year when it gets really overwhelming. I could not cope with any of it. I found it just overwhelmingly stressful and this year I'm actually feel a bit back to who I used to be I'm enjoying a lot of the things there's been so many events at the school and all of the various things that come with Christmas and my daughter's birthday but I've been much more managing to enjoy it and just mentally as in my cognitive capacity is so much better than it was this time last year or this time two years ago where I could only really do one task and I could only manage to do one thing off my list and then move on to the next. And I have much more capacity now to multitask and to get things done. So I think just to give people a little bit of hope, whilst I don't think that I'm fixed, I haven't had a proper crash for three weeks. I haven't had a migraine for three weeks. Mm, Didn't you say you had a migraine the other day? (laughs) Have you forgotten? I had a really bad headache. I, okay, it was probably a migraine, but it wasn't like a five-day migraine. It wasn't a crash. Yeah. 
It wasn't a crash where I am in bed. It could just be a normal migraine that most people get. Yeah, and I took painkillers and I managed to be operational. So for me, that doesn't classify as a crash because those ones that I have before, it's sort of days in bed. Yeah. Yeah, it was a migraine actually, wasn't it? Because it wasn't just a headache because I got the nausea and I was so dizzy. But it's not like a full-on crash. The crashes are so much lighter. Yeah. Those mini crashes, aren't they? yeah. It's true. Like I, I'm doing so much more than I used to. Yeah. You just deal with it. And as long as you're not feeling dizzy or unable to co- Oh, actually, yesterday I'm sitting around a table and my husband and the kids are kind of joking, teasing, arguing back and forth. I just could not handle it. it was, I just told them to shut up. It was just too much. Yeah. Too much noise. Pitch was wrong. It was just... Sensory overload. Yeah. Which leads us into our guest this week because he is a neurologist and talks here about all of those various things. Now, you haven't ever suffered from the sort of classic symptoms of brain fog, but I think that sensory overwhelm or not being able to deal with these sensory inputs is a feature both of long COVID and of his specialties, which is traumatic brain injury and functional neurological disorder. Something to do with our brain's ability to work out what we need to focus on and what we need to block out. Because that sensory overload is something that I had so much. I even bought those earplugs to try and sort it out. They didn't work because as you and I have discussed, we've got really small ears. <laughs> <laughs> So I found them too uncomfortable. But that sensory overload is a kind of brain fog thing. This is like the part two of um, of the interview we, we did with Professor Andrew Shaw, who owns Atomarker, which does the testing for antibody gaps. And so this is his partner at... Recognition Health. So Andrew had referenced Dr. Alder quite a few times in the interview last week. So do listen to that one first. But this discussion that we had with Dr. Alder is actually a really wide-ranging neurological discussion. We do discuss the Atomarker testing and treatment and their work that they're doing with Atomarker. But he is a fascinating clinical practitioner who has so much experience of long COVID and the implications on the brain. Maybe we could start with how you would describe brain injury in terms of long COVID. Whether you would call <laughs> long COVID a brain injury. That's a good question. I can't remember exactly when I first started hearing the news of long COVID, but as soon as I did, it immediately took me to two conditions. It took me to chronic fatigue syndrome and it took me to the mild form of TBI. And my immediate sense was, no one's going to believe these patients. There's going to be this very strong sense that we've all had a stressful experience and somehow the people who are complaining of ongoing symptoms, this is going to be a manifestation of their maladaptive belief systems. And now they're starting to imagine they've got symptoms. For 10 years, I've lived vicariously the experience of patients, particularly on the mild end of the brain injury spectrum who've been told exactly that, that the only reason they're struggling is because they've got maladaptive belief systems. And if only they could cleanse their mind of these unhelpful beliefs, they would be 
jumping around and back to normal. Why is that? Is it just a lack of knowledge, a failing of the medical system, or just when you don't have an answer, then you just push it back onto the patient? (laughs) That is a very good question. I think, so when you sort of qualify as a doctor to begin with, your, your primary concern is, please don't let me kill anybody. That's the first thing. And you spend the first 12 months as a very junior doctor doing your job, just thinking, I don't really know what I'm doing. And I seem to have a lot of responsibility. And slowly that settles down. And then you start to decide what you want to do. And then you start to actually get more clinical experience and you start to learn more and you start to specialize more. I was very lucky and did some really interesting and exciting research. This was using brain imaging in acute stroke. And at that point, there'd been a debate for 50 years about what what was stroke? Was it treatable? There were textbooks this thick written about this. And then better imaging came along. And so instead of having to piece it together, you could just apply all the imaging all together at once. And you could just see exactly what was happening. And it resolved the debate. And then I had this experience of going to Vienna and showing these pictures And just people just could not see. People had got a view of how they'd made sense of it. And even though the pictures seemed to be really clear, I just left that meeting thinking that was amazing because most of the people who had a different viewpoint to begin with, they just could not literally see the pictures and what it meant. So you're saying that even with it right in front of them, the evidence being presented to them, they were unable to rationalise or change their viewpoint. It was just fascinating. That really taught me that you get a debate and the debate persists because people have bits of information and eventually technology moves on and you can start to get a much clearer collection of information. And actually the answer becomes quite straightforward. But for people who've developed a different way of making sense of it, the process of getting your head around that really is difficult. And what I've discovered in medicine is that debate will continue until you get an unequivocal treatment. So so with long COVID, you'll get a very broad spectrum of what people think is the primary problem. And that debate can run and run while there's no treatment. But if one of the theories leads to a clear-cut treatment with a clear-cut effect that then moves the debate forward. So it's only when you get to that point that suddenly the debate about what is probably causing it starts to dissolve. That's interesting because scientifically, once you have maybe imaging or a diagnostic test or you can establish the pathway, you would think that that would be what (laughs) changes people's opinion. But you're saying that it's actually only the resolution in the form of a treatment that changes people's opinion. But that resolution might not necessarily explain to you fully what the pathway was. Yeah, no, no, completely. That has been my experience. And the debate only resolves once a, a really powerful and effective treatment comes along. And of course, what then happens is the people who wouldn't listen, tell you that, of course, this was obvious all along. (laughs) It's humans, right? We are so intractable sometimes in our beliefs, be it politics, be it medicine. But you'd think that medicine is fact-based and, you know, the evidence will lead you down a certain path, but it doesn't seem always to be the case, even in medicine. 
Well, no, no, exactly. And this totally fascinated me. And now I think I do know the answer to it. So there is an extraordinary person called Professor Carl Friston, who is a professor at UCL. So once I'd done my stroke research and I did a fellowship in Australia in Sydney, and at the end of that year, I was reflecting on all of this. There were certain conditions that it struck me that I just couldn't really explain. I couldn't explain chronic fatigue syndrome. I was really struggling to explain what would have been called hysteria, which is now called functional neurological disorder. And it was obvious to me the reason I couldn't was because my understanding of the brain just wasn't correct. Now, it wasn't as though I wasn't trying to understand the brain. I genuinely was. And then I came across a book called Going Inside, which is written by a journalist who wrote something like 15 chapters on the 500 milliseconds it takes to create a conscious thought. I mean, can you believe there is a book that is written about that? But anyway, I found it. And sadly, I was so excited to find it. And, and in the book, he mentions this character called Carl Friston, who is a professor at UCLA. Literally 15 years later, I came across a paper in something to do with functional neurological disorder where he was cited and I remembered it vividly and he's been working on this model of how the brain works and Noreen it's exactly as you say I would sit in my clinic thinking how does the brain evaluate anything how does it compare anything to anything anyway it turns out all our brains have got models we generate models of reality which allow us to predict. So actually, we're predicting what we expect to see. And the brain is designed to damp down surprise. So it's not as though we're actually seeing reality in its pure sense. What we're seeing is a model of reality that our brain is making. And of course, if someone comes along and gives you some information that is difficult, your brain doesn't like it very much. And so it Adapts. And I know this myself, say like with climate change. I mean, climate change should be front and centre. I know I can feel myself. I close it down because I don't know what to do with it. I discovered this myself with, say, people with chronic fatigue. And I, I noticed that I would start to get angry with the patients. And I would notice it and think, what am I doing? And slowly I realised the reason I was getting angry was because I was anxious about the fact that I just didn't know what I was doing with these patients. I didn't know how to make sense of them. I didn't know how to treat them. But I also felt I had a responsibility because they were my patients in my clinic. Once I realised that and became more comfortable with the fact, look, I just don't know. I, I'm trying the best I can. It transformed the relationship with these patients. And I found it very helpful generically. There's so much there to unpack. <laughs> Firstly, climate change is a whole other episode <laughs> that we need to do or a whole other podcast that we need to do. It's very philosophical. The bit that struck me, as you were saying, that the brain dampens down surprise. Yeah. Part of long COVID is that people, uh, they're in this state of fight or flight. Yeah. Which then stimulates the vagus nerve. Do you think that some of this is actually coming from the brain, that we are no longer able to regulate this system where we recognise that something's not a threat or and then end up in this perpetual fight or flight feeling. So there's, there's a lot in that. So for me, making sense of the brain, so one of the things that really helped me is this idea of polyvagal nerve theory. I don't know whether you've heard of that. 
So polyvagal nerve theory was coined by a chap called Stephen Porteous, who's a, a researcher in autonomic physiology. And I'd always imagined that you had the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system and just the two. But it turns out there's actually two branches of the parasympathetic nervous system. We have a very primitive form of the parasympathetic nervous system, which can get triggered when we're intensely challenged, which makes us freeze and close down. When we're stressed and anxious, we switch on the parasympathetic nervous system. And obviously, ideally, we would be in a more of a parasympathetic state, which is kind Mm. of the state Mm. that we need to be when we're kind of restoring and recovering. And I, I know myself, having understood this, I can easily get flipped into both a sympathetic and occasionally even this primitive parasympathetic state. Because whilst you understand it, you can't necessarily override your innate response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I mean, the point is, what I've tried to do now is I try to not see patients as patients. They're human beings just like me. And it's not like I haven't got any problems or challenges. As I've started to blur that different difference between patients and me, it's helped. And so with these autonomic states, they're, they're a natural phenomenon that we all have. It's very possible, to, from my perspective, that if you developed COVID and then you developed long COVID because, say, it affected the brain, that would then cause you problems to your life that would make it more difficult. You would have many more challenges that would put you into a sympathetic state or this primitive sympathetic state. So the first thing is it just may be that getting long COVID disrupts your life, which gives you more challenges, which means that you just find yourself in more fight and flight states because your life's being screwed up. Now, it's also possible that COVID either affects the vagus nerve or affects the nerves in the brain, in the particular part of the brain, which controls this, which may cause some of the symptoms, but would certainly make regulating the symptoms even more difficult. I try to have a more sophisticated view of this. I think it's too simplistic to say people are finding themselves in a fight and flight state. And if they just manage that, everything would be fine. No, no, hang on a second. The fight and flight mechanisms may be dysfunctional because of vagal nerve involvement or brainstem involvement. The impact of a genuine organic problem is going to make it more difficult. You know, you're going to need your autonomic regulation system more anyway because you've got more challenges. And then, of course, your ability to see all of this, again, is your brain, which may not be functioning as well if your brain per se is not working. Could you say that, I know that COVID is, was supposedly a respiratory disease, could you say that all of the symptoms of long COVID could be neurologically driven? Is that a possibility? I think... Given that pain yeah, yeah, yeah. and everything else stems yeah, from... Yeah, yeah. So for me with long COVID, I basically got involved in it, really supporting friends and family of colleagues who were struggling. It affected so many people that most of us have have got direct experience of somebody who has been affected by this. And of course, if you do something like I I do, I mean, I could literally run a private practice just looking after friends and family. I get so many requests about 
medical problems. There's lots of people with long COVID. We, we all know people. And so that has come to me in a professional sense. And to begin with, I found myself very much in a supporting role. So you've got people with long COVID trying to navigate who should we see? What advice should we listen to? And to begin with, I thought, well, I, I can have a role in kind of making sure that I help them kind of synthesize information and maybe even go to consultations and sit in and help them make decisions. But as time has gone on, I've realized that A, most people are not improving. B, the impact of not improving is fundamentally changing their lives. And if they lose hope that there are new emerging ideas coming, that's awful. And I suppose finally, I thought, look, why don't I try and understand this a little bit more myself properly from the physiology up? So getting back to your question, Emily, I think that it's obvious that COVID can affect multiple systems. In a professional sense, I try to stick to the subset of patients with long COVID who have got brain fog, neurological symptoms as the core part of their ongoing problem, as opposed to, say, breathlessness or muscle pains or whatever. And to get to the nitty gritty of the answer to the question, I mean, the French group, which has used PET scanning, looking at hypermetabolism in the brain, have found that 60 to 70 percent of the long COVID patients with that specific clinical phenotype, sounds fancy, but you know, that type of pattern of symptom, have got quantifiable, abnormal brain PET scans, which puts the problem, I think, really in the brain. Which part of the brain? Well, it's a good question. So going from the structure, go from the bottom up. So brain stem, so this is the really primitive bit of the brain, the cerebellum, the bit at the back, and then as you go up, then limbic structures, temporal lobes. But I've just been reviewing a paper where some poor monkeys were given a mild form of COVID, and then they had serial whole body scanning pretty much every other day for 50 days. So of the four monkeys that had this done, how many of them at day two had all of their brain lighting up with evidence of an inflammatory response. All of them is my guess. Yeah, all four, all four. The whole brain lit up with inflammation. So it feels to me that the virus elicits some kind of inflammatory response in the brain of all of us within two days. And interestingly, the, the virus really is not detectable in the monkeys by about 10 days. And what does the brain look like at 10 days? Yeah, the neuroinflammation continues, was still there at day 50. In in all of them? Yeah. And so I think that probably what this is, and, and this is kind of what I've discovered with brain injury, is that each of us, when we encounter either a brain injury or COVID, brings a brain that's already in the world and active and it's probably that there's an individual differential response to exactly the same thing. So when you get bashed on the head, probably the forces that go through the brain are reasonably similar. But the way your individual brain responds to exactly the same injury is very variable, dependent on 
your sort of past history and your genetics and things like that. And I suspect it's exactly the same with the people who end up with this brain fog type picture in long COVID. And so relating long COVID to your knowledge of traumatic brain injury, obviously with traumatic brain injury, most of the people that you're looking at have actually had a physical knock, a physical trauma to the brain. But you're saying that the virus entering the brain has that same impact as actually a, a physical shock in terms of your comparison with traumatic brain injury? There are lots of potential similarities. So, so when you have quite a significant hit to the head, so in the brain, th- think of it as there's a blood supply. So there's blood vessels, tiny little blood vessels. There's neurons, so nerve cells. And then there's the supporting cells, which are called the astroglial compartment. So astrocytes and glial cells. Now, if you get a big bash to the head, then you get obvious damage of blood vessels, nerve cells, and astroglial cells. It's not good for the brain at all. Interestingly, as you get to milder bumps on the head, so let's say you get bumped on the head, you lose consciousness, but you come around and you seem to be okay by the time you get to the emergency department, it looks as though you probably will have subtle problems with the blood vessels, with the nerve cells, and with these astroglial cells. But in some people, the brain mops it all up, You have symptoms for a few days and then you just get on with your life. In some people, you get some improvement, but then you get a plateau. And then in another group of people, it gets worse. So unfortunately, the body's response to exactly the same injury starts to amplify. And in many ways, that's exactly what happened with COVID, wasn't it? The people who ended up on ITU, it seemed to be that the real problem wasn't the virus per se, it was the aggressive immune response to the virus that secondarily started damaging lung tissue and things like that. Yeah, so it's almost our bodies. Yeah, your individual body's response to, and again, I learned this going back to stroke, you have blood vessels in your brain, in your heart, in your limbs, in your kidneys. And when you look at the genetic profiles of the blood vessels in different bits of your own body, there's quite a lot of heterogeneity. So your kidney blood cells may be brilliant at managing high blood pressure, but your eye blood vessels may be much more sensitive. Similarly, if you have diabetes, I suspect that the way eventually we'll make sense of it is we're all exposed to the same virus. The virus is probably eliciting a pretty similar response initially in most of us, and the virus is going to the same bits in most of us. But what determines what happens to us as individuals is much more determined by our individual response. And that individual response will be a mixture of our genetics and pre-exposure status. But with so many other post-viral illnesses, the numbers seem so small in comparison to the numbers of long COVID patients. So does that mean either the sheer numbers of people that were exposed to COVID and that's caused the the spike in numbers? Or is it that the genetic disposition to getting long COVID is something that's much more prominent in a lot of us? That's a very good question. And when I was trying to make sense, you know, before COVID came along, when I was still in the back of my mind, trying to make sense of chronic fatigue and this post-viral malaise, the CDC in America have done a very good job at trying to synthesize this together. And I remember looking at some work that someone was presenting when, when they were prospectively looking at individuals to most, say, Epstein-Barr virus or Parvovirus, 
And they seem to be saying that regardless of the virus, you always seem to end up with five to 10% of people after acute exposure, if you prospectively follow people and you don't lose them along the way, end up with some form of post-viral state. So actually, the percentage looks pretty similar with COVID. The difference has been just so many people have. Now, it, it looks as though maybe with Delta and Alpha variants, the percentage of people may be slightly higher. But of course, it's difficult with vaccinations. Are, are we comparing like with like? But it seems to me with the Omicron variants, even though the number of people that seem to be getting long COVID seems to be a smaller percentage per exposure because we're just letting it run wild. So many more people are getting exposed now. So the total number of people who are struggling is staying very similar and it's huge. Yeah, we were talking about that last week, weren't we, Noreen? Yes. In terms of your, you you obviously come at it from a neurological perspective, but you've spent the past three years looking at this fairly broadly, is your theory then to then be working with Atemarker that there is some form of viral persistence that's driving this condition? I found myself in a position where I'm trying to help individuals navigate their reality. And it seems to me their their reality is their world has been turned upside down by long COVID. There is no official formal system that you can go to to provide consistent evidence-based diagnostics and treatment. So we're all, it feels like, building the plane as we're flying it. I think the thing for me with Atomarka was I was getting to a point with trying to support these people where it was a little bit of desperation in terms of what can I actually suggest in terms of where should you go and to get some more testing. And the thing about the Atomarka test was that it's empirical. So it's, it's a really nice empirical thing. So you can go and Get your antibody tested. So you can say, I think I changed on this date or around this period of time. So there's a reasonably good chance you can work out what strain of COVID was around when you changed from how you were before. And then you, you, you can check your antibody response to that. And if your antibody response is low or the antibodies that you've got are poor quality, then that's an interesting correlation. It opens the possibility that the reason why you particularly ended up with COVID following that variant was because your immune system did not generate a very strong or high quality antibody response. That then opens up the possibility because of those two things, low volume, poor quality, that you do have persisting virus. That then in turn opens up the possibility, can we fix this antibody hole, if you like? And you can either do that through an acute monoclonal antibody treatment, plus or minus antivirus treatment running in parallel to that. Or you can be vaccinated with one of the newer vaccines and then check your antibody spectrum. That was the hope in terms of certainly the people I was supporting. Guys, we're running out road. Let's get this test done. Let's see if there is a match between when you got COVID and where you've generated a poor antibody response and take it from there. And I think it's true to say that in the people that I'm involved with clinically, we've seen a match in 80% of people. 
In terms of the other results that I've signed off as part of generating clinical letters for people who've been tested, I would say the percentage match is significantly lower than that. I am seeing more of an antibody response to the earlier variants, which is probably related to the fact that people have now been vaccinated with a much poorer response to the Omicron variants. So I like it because it does allow you to be quite scientific. You can say, look, we've got this theory that the reason why you've got long COVID is because you've got persistence of virus. If you've got a mismatch of your antibodies to that variant, that makes sense. So fixing it and seeing what happens. And in terms of doing that at scale, we're trying to reach out to funders to try and see if we can do this properly and do this with more people. I totally buy into this theory. If you only got COVID once, uh, you probably help me here. My brain kind of dies at the point where I'm like, okay, so you you produce this certain antibody to the Wuhan or wild yeah. um, strain, and then you, it produced a poor response. And so you've got these really crappy antibodies running around doing nothing much. Then you've got Omicron. Am I right in understanding this? You produce some different antibodies they're a bit more effective, but you still have a bit of the Wuhan virus running around because the early antibodies didn't work properly. That's where you lose me slightly. <laughs> and then you've got the vaccine on top of that, which produces then different antibodies. I thought that the antibodies only circulated for a certain amount of time and then died off. Because, for example, my son, when he got COVID, a year later when he had his antibodies tested, they said he had no antibodies. But in many ways, that does illustrate the challenge of this condition. So there does need to be this MDT-like approach. So so with Andrew Shaw, you've done an interview with him, haven't you? Yeah, we've done an interview with him. Great overview of the science behind the test and your treatment yeah. strategy that you're developing. Yeah, so in terms of when we give the monoclonal antibody, as Noreen was saying, that goes up and down and then is washed away. But when you give a vaccine, you're generating the antibodies from a different mechanism and they persist. So Andrew was telling me last week that they've got a case of somebody who had long COVID from an earlier variant. They, they got COVID again, which then generated a whole new set of antibodies. And with that, the person has got an awful lot better. So it's possible that the new antibodies that were generated to the new exposure of the virus has actually been able to mop up any residual virus from the previous exposure. Can antibodies do that? The antibodies that have been developed for this new one, they're not just absolutely specific to, to that. And again, that doesn't make sense to me because people like us had COVID four times. We should be fine now. (laughs) because <laughs> our body would have produced four different types of antibodies plus the vaccine, but people aren't getting better despite having multiple vaccines. Oh, yeah, no, no, yeah. So, so, so viral persistence is only one of the possible mechanisms. So my strong sense has been, which is only fortified by the stuff I was telling you about with the monkeys, that you could have virus in your system for 10 days and then you got rid of it all and you've had a perfect immune response. But... You've been unlucky and that your brain, the inflammation in the brain that's been triggered, that is then now separate from your systemic immune system because it's behind the blood-brain barrier, has just got stuck 
and he's sitting there driving dysfunction of brain cells. It's not necessarily damaging brain cells, but it's stopping them functioning properly. So instead of it being that the virus is just undetectable at that 10-day point with the monkeys, it's that your body is still creating a viral response to a virus that is not necessarily there. Is that not what happens in autoimmune conditions? So in autoimmune is that you you start producing chronic antibodies to a normal tissue. In the brain, it's possible to literally switch the balance of, let's call it helpful and non-helpful immune status. So normally we would hope, let's talk about me, I'd hope at the moment, I haven't got any symptoms, I'm functioning okay, that my innate immune system in my brain is in a helpful, protective state. But weirdly, actually thinking about it, so literally this time last year, I got flu. On the Sunday, my wife said to my PA, look, he can't go in on Monday. And I was lying in bed saying, "What? Are you? don't be so ridiculous. Of course, I'll be okay on Monday. Anyway, so I wake up about four o'clock on Monday. I think missed the whole day being in bed in my flu-like state. <laughs> I looked at the document on my phone that I was meant to be discussing in the meetings I'd slept through. I literally could not make sense of it. I could read it, but I thought, this is so long. This is so complicated. What is all this? And it was obvious to me that my brain had been affected. And probably that virus had done the same as COVID. It had gone through my brain. But luckily, within a couple of days, I was back boring everybody again, regaling on, you know, with my, <laughs> with my normal brain. But what I'm saying is that if I'd have been unlucky, it's very possible that as that virus is going through, causing that inflammation, if it had triggered something else that meant the inflammation in my brain never really settled down to normal, I could have been left in a classic post-viral brain fog state. And then I don't need persistent virus to have triggered or maintained that. So how do we calm the brain then? Is there a treatment or are there theories or trials going on looking at how we can control the inflammation? So the monkey study I mentioned to you is quite recent. So I think it was probably July or August this year. And then I, in preparation for this, I thought, I wonder whether anybody cited it. And it's only been cited by three people. But one of the teams that has cited it is the French team who've been doing the PET scanning. So in France, if you have brain fog post-COVID on their NHS, you can get a PET scan. <laughs> well, well, we... It'd be great if someone in the NHS could listen to yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, uh... come on, guys. Come on, we... <laughs> yeah, and there's plenty of PET scan capacity as well. What, in the UK? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just not, not using it on any of us. It's very helpful now for staging cancer and cancer treatments and seeing how things have gone. So it's one of those imaging modalities where you actually probably do have enough capacity so you don't have to wait for ages as soon as we probably deployed it on covid we probably wipe out all the capacity but but you could definitely do this in the uk if you so desired so the french team so they've just published a hypothesis paper and they then have said right okay so we can see now we've got this clue from the pet scanning and some other stuff that's been published and this working monkeys 
we were right all along. It is the astrocytes. And they're talking about two ways in which to improve stuff. So there was like three medications that were going to boost the neurotransmitters that they think the astrocytes or the astroglial cells should be producing, but they're not. So you try and get the normal amount of neurotransmitter back to its normal levels. So that's not treating the inflammation, that's overcoming the effect of the inflammation. And then the other option they were talking about was switching off the inflammation. And there's quite an interesting development in something called CCL11, which seems to be a very specific, I think it's a chemokine that seems to be associated with chronic neuroinflammation in animals who they managed to create the equivalent of long COVID in. And with Atomarka, Andrew is in the process of, he's very resourceful, developing for us a CCL11 biomarker, which would allow us to either test this in the serum or even in the fluid around the brain. In a similar test to the other Atomarka testing? Yeah, yeah. And that will tell you if you've got inflammation? No, that will tell you whether or not you've got activation of this particular chemokine in the brain and it seems to be that it's this pathway that drives the ongoing inflammation and if we could show that a significant proportion of people who've got the brain fog variant of long covid have brain inflammation say on a pet scan and even better or even more precisely they then have this elevated chemokine that then gives you a really plausible target it feels we could be entering quite an exciting phase but i fear this is going to be done in france not here are you saying that you can see neuroinflammation on pet imaging of your long covid patients yeah yeah, that come to you with you can see that visibly yeah yeah and can you see that on also on mris or is it just pets no yeah so interesting i have had long covid for three and a half nearly four years And I have not yet seen a neurologist. I am still fighting with my GP to be able to see a neurologist, let alone PET imaging. Most of us here have no idea what is going on with our brains. I guess if you've had an MRI or you've had a CT scan or you've had some other kind of imaging, if there's nothing shown on that, then they don't necessarily refer you for anything else. I had an MRI, do you remember? Way back. Oh, yeah. They showed I'd had an asymptomatic ischemic stroke at some point. A cerebellar infarct. Yeah. The neurologist couldn't tell me whether I'd had it six months ago or six years ago or 16 years ago. So this takes me back to my experience with traumatic brain injury. So let's go back. So when I did my first stroke research, the reason why there was a debate for 50 years was that the brain imaging just couldn't really see what you needed to see. Then in particular, MRI suddenly started to develop and you could start to see things. Now, You could do a CT scan and you could do a certain standard MRI sequence and both scans would be normal. You do this new MRI scan and literally half the brain was being affected by a stroke. So when people say to me, oh, the brain scan's normal, so there can't be anything there. It's like, what are you talking about? What what matters is, (laughs) is the MRI scan sequence has it been developed to to be sensitive to the pathophysiological changes that you're trying to find? Now, as I moved into brain injury, the same MRI physicists who I'd done that original 
work with. One was in Canada, one was in America. And so I really hooked up with them to say, where are we with MRI and this? And they say, look, it's just not good enough at an individual level to see this at the moment. And this was probably 2015, 16. But it was dogma. And to be honest, it still is dogma that if the scan was normal, there can't be anything wrong. That just makes literally no sense. If we've got a technique that can actually pick up the changes in brain injury, and that's negative, then I agree with you. So say with stroke, you would see people with a stroke and or you think it was a stroke clinically, and then you do this clever test. And if it was normal, everybody would get better. And actually, when you went back, you could work out, oh, it was actually a seizure, or actually there was some other cause for the person having the symptoms at that time. It might be a migraine attack or something like that. So when you have a test where it's very good at picking up the thing that you're looking for, and it's negative, then that's very helpful. But if you have a test that is just useless at trying to find the problem, and then you use that to say there's not a problem, well, that's probably near to <laughs> madness, isn't it? But that doesn't stop well, that's people. actually long COVID in a nutshell, though, isn't it? Because <laughs> yeah. we all go for all these tests, we come back, whatever our symptoms are, but we have a standard blood test, we have an X-ray, a standard scan at best, and uh, we're told we're fine. There's nothing wrong with you, which then puts it all into your mind. Yes, exactly. So the French group now, I can't remember exactly the number, but it's something in the region of 200 people they've now scanned and published the results in. So they've taken people, they've had COVID, typically mild, presenting with persistent brain fog, and they've done a PET scan looking for metabolism in the brain, And in 60 to 70% of those people, they have found unequivocal objective evidence of hypometabolism. Now, the additional work since then is very much saying this looks like the hypometabolism is secondary to inflammation in these astroglial cells. And the astroglial cell inflammation is stopping the normal nerve cells functioning. And you asked me a question about the overlap with TBI. What's really interesting is that the parts of the brain that are affected by long COVID are very, very similar to the parts of the brain that are affected with TBI. In TBI, you tend to get both astroglial cells and nerve cells damaged, but there's so much overlap in the clinical picture with the chronic fatigue you have, the difficulty you have with maintaining your train of thought and concentration, difficulty with finding the right word, difficulty with remembering names, difficulty with background noise and noise sensitivity. I mean, these are cardinal symptoms in a TBI person, which when you ask people with the brain fog subtype of long COVID, they typically have as well. I don't know whether you experience that yourself. But you can't fix people with traumatic brain injury, can you? Well, not at the moment. That is my next 10 years work. (laughs) (laughs) I've spent 10 years trying to prove it's a real problem, which is very serious, because if there is doubt in the kind of prevailing system, you know, if there is this controversy, is it organic? Is it the mind? It makes it very difficult to make progress certainly been my experience until the system as a whole says oh yes 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 this is definitely real and so we definitely must invest in it we must try and understand it 
And then once that reveals a treatment, then suddenly everything shifts and everybody thought that all along. Which brings us full circle back to your point at the beginning. So at this point, would you suggest that we need to focus on these PET scans, imaging, antibody testing? Would you suggest that our emphasis, if we could get governmental investment or private investment or an interest and willingness to address long COVID, would you suggest going down that testing route? Or would you suggest the focus on the treatment strategies and clinical trials into potential drugs would be the best opportunity for us to actually get out of this situation? Well, you have to have an accurate diagnosis. If you want to try and find out whether or not treatments are really working or not, you need to give yourself the best chance, which is to have a homogeneous group of people to start with. And the beauty of the PET scanning is you can do it serially. So the French group, they haven't rescanned all 200, but they've certainly rescanned a significant proportion of that. And lo and behold, most of the people have got ongoing problems in the percentage of people that have improved objectively on the scans, their symptoms have improved. So certainly, I would definitely be saying, look, this condition is affecting a lot of people, it's affecting people in the prime of their lives. And that means it affects them, but it affects the whole of their family. We've got enough objective evidence that the brain fog variant, if 60 or 70% of people have got positive PET scan, that's telling you this is real and we, we need to get to the bottom of this. And clearly in the French and the uh, sort of European alliance, that penny has dropped. And I know for a fact that if that was to be the case, that would completely transform the interest of people in this condition. It also makes it less controversial. I know myself that, say, in the brain injury space, once you can start to show we've got new scanning techniques that are objectively demonstrating brain damage, so you don't need to worry, has the person got brain damage? Are the symptoms that they're describing likely to be real? Once you take that off the table, the percentage of people who will engage and relax just goes up exponentially. I would start there because I think the downstream treatments are not going to be easy to evaluate. So in the paper that I was talking about, which is just published recently, that if you really wanted to work out whether or not some of these symptomatic treatments that boost neurotransmitters in the brain really have an impact, you're probably going to have to randomise 50-50 or 100 to 100. And to give yourself a chance, you want to have them selected on the basis of the fact they definitely have got a problem, which is the PET scan. Now, as you practice in the UK... Do you think it's harder or easier to be in the private sector to get some of these tests done? Or is it harder to raise money? Or do you think it's better to do this within the NHS, these type of trials? Yeah, yeah. we go into a whole new rabbit hole here. The NHS is an unbelievable institution and entity, and we should try and protect it. But at the same time, it's really difficult to protect. A, it's political, and B, It's so centralised. But this is the tragedy here because the centralisation would be a massive advantage to trying to get to grips with COVID. I mean, I, I cannot understand why there is not a call to say, look, guys, this is important, serious. Let's just get together. You've even got 
many of the if you just go down your list of people who've you've interviewed on this podcast and you said right get these guys in a room for a couple of days and they will generate for you a body of work that we need to fund and get going that would be a step change in the prospects of people with long covid I mean, when we said it was wide ranging, we covered as much as we possibly could in that interview, I think. Oh, uh, we could have talked to him for days, though, couldn't we? I know, poor guy. (laughs) We we kept saying just one more question. (laughs) What a nice man, though. But they all are. Uh, I have to say they all are. They are. And when you speak to them and, and you hear how he says that he could actually, for friends and family, run a full-time service for long COVID. I think it just really brings home quite how many people all of us know who are affected by this and quite how many people don't have an effective point of contact to help them with the disease. Absolutely. I certainly don't. Well, it's the end of the year almost, getting there. Christmas coming up. Yeah. Uh, Wishing everyone a really safe and healthy Christmas, hopefully, as the COVID numbers spike that they miss everyone who's got long covid or potentially could get long covid don't you think this it feels like we've had some hopeful interviews during this year i feel like we have got a lot of people doing a lot of good things in this space now it feels like we are moving forwards we just need some big money now to really really set us on the road to clinical trials and and potential treatments Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.